Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7 of Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. We've got several visiting this morning, which is awesome. Just as a, just, just kind of how do we come to Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 through 7 this morning? It's because we've just finished Ephesians chapter 4 and before that Ephesians chapter 3. Here at Redeemer, we just take a book of the Bible and we walk through the entire book and that's just kind of the way we do things. So I just wanted you to understand that as we're going to the text today and next week we're going to be looking at the next portion of Ephesians chapter 5. And so I always encourage you to not only be studying God's word, but be studying ahead, be looking ahead at the things we're going to be covering as a church. And so before we go to Ephesians 5, 1 through 7, let's go to him in prayer again and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your holy word, we pray that you would help us, that you would open it up to us, that you would open it up to our minds, that we might comprehend the things that are being said, but that you would also open it to our hearts, that we might be changed by it, that you would show us our sin, that we would be convicted of our sin and repent and turn to you, that you would show us our idols, that we would cast them down and turn to you. And Lord, we pray that ultimately you would show us again how to find rest in you, show us the truth of your gospel and your words to us. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as I read through this passage, we have this real difficult commandment for us right here at the beginning. And it made me think of times as a teacher when I have a difficult concept to teach. One of the things that makes a good teacher is taking an indicative statement, taking some sort of factual truth, and breaking it down into parts and making that more palatable, making it something that the student can it digests as individual little parts as opposed to this giant big thing all at once. One of the things that often gets said inside a biology classroom is that a protein's shape determines its function. Probably brought back some memories for some of you who've been in my classroom. Of course it does, you know that. I say that probably 10,000 times a year, but what does that mean? What's a protein? What does its shape have to do with anything? And what are their functions? That's what we talk about. We break it down into each individual part, and eventually it starts to make sense. Something as complex as biochemistry starts to make a little more sense. Well, today we are given this imperative statement from the Apostle Paul, a command which is to be imitators of Christ. And for the Christian, there is little ambiguity with that statement, so there's no difficulty in understanding what does that mean, but... The difficulty is, how do I do that? How can I possibly do that? If we have a correct view of Jesus, we know that we can never match his righteousness. In fact, we need his righteousness in order to stand before a holy God. Yet as Christians, resting on the righteousness of Christ, we are commanded to be imitators of Christ. It's a high calling, and one that at very at many times can, can drive Christians to despair as we consider our shortcomings and wonder how can we possibly measure up. Rather than focusing on Jesus, we begin to focus on ourselves. 
Christian's life can become a slog rather than a joy. As we look more closely at the text, we'll look at Paul's command, but we'll also look at how he breaks it down to something that we can swallow in these smaller kind of bites. And ultimately, it leads us to Jesus, who is with us, guiding us, carrying us even, as we imitate him. So we'll consider this text in three main ideas. First, be imitators of Christ. Second, be separate from the world. And then lastly, Christ's offering for us. And so let's look together at the text, Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 7. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So if we, just for a bit of context, where we're at in the book of Ephesians, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 4, Paul kind of began switching gears in the book and went into a portion of the book where he's, where he's asking us as believers in Christ to apply the salvation that we have. In the first chapters, we learned about God's plan of salvation for the elect in Jesus Christ. And then starting in chapter 4, we read that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, something that we've been talking about over the last several weeks, what that means. So today we have kind of a qualification for that walking, that we would be imitators of God. That's what we read in verse 1. You're going to hear me say imitators of Christ a lot because Christ is God become man. It's hard for us to think about being imitators of God in heaven and and even wrap our minds around that, but we can wrap our minds around this man who existed, who became, or God became man so that we could know God. It's important that we get this list of moral imperatives that we have here before us, and even as we move into the coming weeks into teaching on things like marriage and family as we move through chapter 5, that we realize that these commands are given to us with the understanding that there is no possible way, and hear this, I'm going to say it several times today, there is no possible way that in doing these commandments we can any way earn favor before God. What I mean by that. See, even if we are just casual students with the first three chapters of this book, we know that our favor with God has nothing to do with our goodness. It has nothing to do with who we are. In fact, it had nothing to do with us even being alive in the first place. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, we are told that we are dead in our sins and that we had to be made alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So as we move into these moral imperatives for the Christian life and marriage and so forth, let us be careful that we aren't using these verses to place this giant weight around our own necks, or worse, around the necks of others. If Jesus had meant for the Christian life to be drudgery, he wouldn't have paid it all on the cross. Rather, he would have paid just enough and made us work for the rest. But in nowhere in Scripture do we read anything remotely close to that. But sadly, that is oftentimes, as Christians, how we live our lives, as if we owe God something. There is nothing, hear this, there is nothing that we could do to begin to repay the goodness and mercy that we have been shown in Christ. Yet, we are also told that the way is narrow. That leads to eternal life. And few enter by it. The Christian life is hard. Not because we are working our way to God. Not because we're just hoping to be just good enough to get in. Christ was completely good. And he is the reason that we are safe in him. But the Christian life is hard because we work against the world. We live in the world. And sometimes we look at the world and we want to be just like it. Like Eve in the garden. We see that the fruit is a delight to the eyes. Perhaps even could make us more wise. So it's important that we pay careful attention to these words. Not to earn a better place before Jesus. That is not possible. You cannot earn a better Jesus than the one you currently have. Thanks be to God. But to become more like him. To be imitators of him. And that brings us to the first point. Be imitators of Christ. Verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God and as beloved children. When I read the verse this time and studied it this time, I really grabbed hold of that as beloved children part. Because this honestly is difficult, right? To be imitators of God. What does that mean? It's that all of a sudden you feel the weight kind of coming around you. But when I read it this time, it struck me as different as I saw the faces of my own young children back when they were really, really little, right? And they would, they would kind of watch you and they would watch Emily with this kind of admiration. And they would try to do things and say things and even, and even hold their faces the way that we were doing that. And it was just, it was almost comical at times and you would kind of exploit that, make your, a funny face and, when you saw them doing it, right? Because they were literally trying to be imitators of you. And I don't love my children because they were imitating me. I love them because they're mine. Yet children who are loved by their parents want nothing more than to imitate their parents. And I think that's really important as we go forward here, that you, brothers and sisters in Christ, are loved Even while we are just toddlers doing our best to imitate a perfect Savior, He still loves us. Verse 2, I think, is helpful for us in this. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, because it's kind of a positive. As we get into the following verses, 3-7, through we kind of have these prohibitions, which is right and good for God to give us prohibitions, but here we are told to walk in love, which is a a good thing. On Wednesday nights, 
We've been going through the Ten Commandments, and we've been pointing out all the positives of those thou shalt not. You know the, you know the list. Each commandment, God is not only giving us a prohibition, you shouldn't do these things, but he's also at the same time telling us you should then be doing these things. Not only are we not to murder, but we are to promote life and uphold life as inherently dignified. We're not only not to lie, but we are to value truth and defend it. So as we, as verses 3 through 7, again, are largely a don't do this kind of list, which is, again, perfectly valuable for the Christian life, verse 2 is telling us that we ought to walk in love as we are not doing the things that are listed below. This is an important thing, lest we become a rigid group of rule keepers rather than a group of people who are known by how much they love others. As imitators of Christ, we must remember that our Lord, as he walked the earth, he was seen as very different than those who were around him. He was a Jewish man by all accounts, partaking in Jewish customs, understanding the Jewish law, of course, better than anyone. Yet he lived in such a way that he showed an innate love for God and man, following the greatest commandments perfectly, but loving people the way that they ought to be loved because they are the people that God made. He made enemies along the way, of course, but wasn't because of the way he treated people. It wasn't that he treated them badly and that's why he, they didn't like him. It was because they could not believe that Jesus was indeed the only way to the Father. And so for us in our imitation of Christ, we need to have this same character about us. As far as it depends on us, we should seek to be at peace with all people. We read that instruction from the Apostle Paul in Romans twelve eighteen. If people are against us, it only needs to be because they are also against our Lord Jesus. As we talk about being separate from the world, understand that we are not, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not at war with them. We are to love them and to take to them the only hope that we have in Jesus. That brings us to the next point. Be separate from the world. Look with me again at verses 3 through 4. But sexual immorality, all impurity and co- or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving so remember we are to be imitators of christ like a small child watching their parent doing what they are doing so then it would make sense that the things that are on this list are things that we should be distancing ourselves from why because they are not of christ rather they are of the world remember back in 419 if you just look there at 419 we read about the unbeliever and how they see these acts, right? That they have become calloused or unfeeling. And so what do they do in their unfeeling state? Well, they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They're, they're, they're desperate to go out and do all of these impure things because of their callousness. They want to feel anything at all. So they're greedy and they seek out all these things that they think will satisfy them. They're imitators of the world. We know this to be true. You can be a hermit and still know this to be true. There's no way to escape the world while we are living in it, primarily because 
we live with ourselves. And we still struggle with the flesh and the sins of this world. So the instruction here in these things is that these things shouldn't be named among us. This is in opposition, thinking of the name that we wear as Christians. We wear the name of Christ. And so these things should not be named among us. Sexual immorality, any kind of sexual sin, sexual relations outside of marriage, or just simply looking lustfully at another person. Impurity, just kind of this big amorphous kind of word. The word here literally in the original language is like the opposite of purging. So rather than getting rid of something and making it clean, we are taking on everything. The word here is like indulgence. It pairs very well with covetousness, a desire for all things, which covers all sin pretty easily. But in particular here, there's a particular bent there in verse 4. Let no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. I spent a lot of time in verse 4 looking at this word filthiness because it's interesting the way that we kind of define that depending on the cultural norm of the time. The word literally means like shameful talk. Rather than imitating Christ and think about what that means in its just pure form, this high form of praise and honor, instead of doing that for Christ, bringing him praise, bringing honor to his name, instead we are doing something that brings shame. We all understand this sort of speech. If you have children or you've been a child, all that's all of you. You remember that time probably when your parents said, People are going to look at you. I know this was often said to me. People are going to look at you and say that you aren't raised right. And I know different was what my mom would often say. She did raise me right. For some parents, the shame of their children can bring upon them can be crippling, even though it has nothing to do with them. And so some of you have experienced this in different forms, and we totally understand this idea of shameful talk. So then we see that what Paul says, that these things are completely out of place, right? This, this kind of shameful talk is out of place. And in its place should be what? Something that does the opposite of shaming, something that honors. That is, words of thanksgiving, seeking to honor and praise the Father. We have to be really careful here. Not to pigeonhole verse 4 into our own little version of what we believe to be wrong, something like cussing, for instance, or a particular kind of speech that we subjectively believe to be foolish or crude joking. We love to do this sort of thing. We love to create a standard that is just, it is always just below our own personal threshold of righteousness that we have created for ourselves. We love to then take our personal standard and look at others and say, if only they were as holy as me. Rather, what the true standard of righteousness is our Lord, Jesus Christ, not us. So we are all, brothers and sisters in Christ, found wanting of that standard. And so then we are not able to judge others by this standard that we have made in order to make ourselves feel better. And we're not able to judge ourselves by that standard either. But a Christian should be very careful with what we say, 
who we say it to, how we say it. Jesus said very clearly, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Romans chapter 12, again, we are told that we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. In 1 Corinthians 2, we're told that we even have the mind of Christ. So we have this mind of Christ, yet our mind, because of the world and the flesh that we still battle with, is constantly being transformed and renewed as we grow in the grace of Christ Jesus our Lord. And this should be the mark of a Christian. So then how do we show this transformation? How do we demonstrate this when when nothing but shameful words are coming out of our mouths? What is the admonition here for the person who claims to be a believer yet doesn't demonstrate that ever in their lives? That's why he goes on in verses 5 and 6 to explain to us that there are consequences for living in such a way. Let's look at those verses together, verses 5 and 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So I want to be clear here. Understand that these verses aren't saying that you're going to go to hell for cussing or telling a dirty joke. They are saying the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 7, however, that we read from last week, that you will know them by their fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, meaning that as you look at the whole of a person's life, not that one time they said that one thing, but as you look at the whole of a person's life and you see nothing but filthiness and foolish talk, you're probably looking at the life of an unbeliever. And this isn't just words. This isn't just the things that we said. That's why he lumped in these other things as sexual immorality and and covetousness. This is to say that the life of a Christian is not marked by these things or not categorized by these things. Rather, it is marked as the one who is imitating the one that they claim to love. And if we are really passionate about doing this, and if you're a Christian, you should be, then we will follow the instruction then of verse 7. So look with me at verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Do not form a partnership with the world. Now, understand here too, this doesn't mean that we just move out to the middle of nowhere and break off all ties and live off the grid and all this other kind of stuff. This doesn't mean that we're not interacting with the world at all because to do that would go against the great commission that Jesus has given us to go out into the world, right? Teaching them all the things that I have commanded. He's, he's told us to go out into the world, but that is very different than being partnered with the world. It goes back to the themes that are started in chapter two and brought forward that in Christ we are what? We are, we are one. We are all members of the same body. We are partakers of one another and partakers of Christ together. And so then to be called partners or partakers with the world can't happen. This world partakers literally means to have in common. So 
we do not have a commonality with the world at all. We are, we are different from them as far as our walk with the Lord goes. Because we've been told that we have one body of Christ. And therefore, we are one with Christ. Jesus cannot be made one with the world. The world was only ever against him. So if we are passionate about being imitators of Jesus, then we will show a separation from the world. Again, not a physical separation at all. Jesus came. He became man and dwelt among us, demonstrating the exact opposite of that. But we are to show ourselves to be different. And when we don't, this is the important part, and I want you to hear this. When we don't, which is all the time, we are thankful for the one who was, for the one who is. And that is our Lord Jesus, and that brings us to the last point, Christ's offering for us. Look again with me at verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we go back to verse 2 because this is really the crux of it all. Again, it's very easy to see these commandments as a bunch of do nots, but the do in all of them really has to do with us walking in love, which we are commanded to do, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the sum of all the commandments. And there is no greater example than our Lord Jesus himself, who loved us and who gave himself up for us. And his love for us wasn't just limited to words. He didn't simply from his throne on high look down and say, I love you all. Hope you have hope for the best. But it was a love that was an action. It was a very real action on a very real day that was carried out by real people. And we have it here before us as we see the Lord's Supper laid before us as a sign of what happened on that day when he gave himself up for us. He demonstrated his love for us in this while we were still sinners, while we were unable to completely be imitators of God, Jesus died for us. For us, it means that in a few, for us, what it means in a few important ways, namely, the sacrifice that ensures that God is able to say about us and look at us and call us a people for myself. Without Jesus, all people would face the wrath of God. Because of Jesus, we don't. Because Jesus faced the wrath of God and took it upon himself. So our failure to imitate Christ has been nailed to the cross. It has been removed as far as the east is from the west. So brothers and sisters in Christ, we can rest. We don't have to fight and earn our way For favor with God, Jesus did that on our behalf, and we have rest for our souls. We rest in earning favor with him, but hear this. We cannot rest when it comes to being imitators of him. The world will know that we are his disciples by how we love each other. And we can then show them Jesus, but how we love them too. And we can show no greater love for them than to share with them the gospel message of Jesus Christ that took us from dead as sinners 
and alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those words have real power. Rather than shameful words, we can give them the very words of life. And if you're an unbeliever here, I can show you no greater love than to tell you that without Jesus, you will suffer an eternity in hell. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved but that name. He can rescue you as he did for me, as he did for others. Find rest for your weary weary soul in Christ. And for Christians here, the call to action is quite plain. We live in a world that imitates their father, the devil. We live in a world that sows discord and distrust, that praises and honors filthiness, sexual immorality, coarse joking, and they value death rather than life. They worship the creature rather than the creator. They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And we live in this world. And we are to be imitators of Christ so that they can see Jesus. If we preach his word yet do not love, we may as well be speaking to the wall. Yet when we show them the love of Christ, God will use that as a means to open their hearts and minds. So brothers and sisters, let us be ones who show the world the love that we have been shown. Let us be imitators of Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come before you, we come to you as those who have failed many times to be imitators of you. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to rest anyway. That you would give us rest for our souls and again, show us, tell us that we have rest in you and that we have you completely and that we are not currently trying to earn our favor before the Father. But Lord, also teach us to be imitators of you. Teach us to be imitators of you, not only so that you would be honored and praised, but so the world would know. That they would know that you are the only way to the Father. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.